0: Do is talk about what happens in our communities when we are in relationship with Christ and our life reflects that. In other words, it changes just like your marriage changed when you got in true relationship with Christ and not just in religion. Just like hopefully your work ethic and the way you serve in whatever career and whatever arena you're in changed when you really got in relationship with Christ. In the same way, our government, our our sphere of influence in government has to change once we're in relationship with Christ because now. We live out our citizenship, reflecting that relationship with Christ and obeying what he gave us. So I'm going to talk about biblical citizenship tonight and what that means to you, what it means to me, once we're in that that true relationship. And that means talking a little bit about government and about politics. But don't worry, don't get too nervous. I'm, I'm no longer a politician. I'm actually a recovering politician. I go to a Tuesday night meeting every week. I'm Rick, recovering politician. I just want you all to know I'm three years clean off the ballot, just so you know. My wife's very happy about that. But uh, no, we need more patriots in the world of government, not just politicians, right? And there's a difference. That actually means something. See, a politician is only thinking about the next election. Everything they do, they're trying to get reelected. A patriot is thinking about the next generation, and everything they're doing, they're thinking ahead to what's best for that next generation. A biblical worldview says that we must think generationally. It's not about thinking selfishly what's in it for me. It's about how can I serve the community and how can I bring biblical values into this. So that's exactly how we're gonna look at biblical citizenship in modern America. How do we do this? in our particular system of government. And once we have that relationship, how how does it get reflected? So let's look at the Great Commission. What does he actually tell us to do? Once we have that relationship with Christ, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And this is the part we're gonna talk about tonight. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now this this means that we're not just believers in Christ, we're followers of Christ. We're actually following his commands. Let me sidetrack just for a second, because I know when I use that word commands, our, our, our culture today, we don't like that. Immediately, we're like, wait, wait, wait what do you mean commands? You know, Ten commandments sounds like a bunch of rules, sounds like somebody's trying to tell me what to do, and, and, and I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm not going to get to be free and do whatever I want, and that American individualism says freedom means we can do anything and everything that we want. That's a distorted view of freedom, but, but that's kind of our attitude initially. So, so let me just try to attack this in a couple of ways and get a couple of our misconceptions out of the way first before we dive in into the details. Um, I used to be that way. I I used to hear people talk about the Ten Commandments or different things that Jesus commanded us to do, and my immediate reaction was very negative. I wasn't surrendered or submitted to him. I wanted to live my my own life. And and I've finally come into the understanding that the Ten Commandments are actually a gift to me, that that Jesus' commands and his teachings are actually a gift so that I can get the best out of life. Uh, I think we've been lied to many times in our culture that, that if we actually do what Jesus said to do, that it's not only right, that it actually works best. See, we've been told that if you follow those things, you're having to give up your true self or not be your true self. Think about who Jesus really is He, he, he made you, He's the master, He's the designer, He knows how your brain works. He knows how your heart works. He knows how our emotions work. He knows how our interactions work. And so he gave us this great, great gift known as the word of God that is literally our instruction manual for life. So it's not this command and control thing. It's literally a gift saying, you want the best out of life? Let me show you how you, how you get that. I, I love the whole comma thing. Where'd that gal go? She, uh, I, lo- I, lo- I like that in John 10 and 10 as well, right? He came to give us life, not period, comma, and life more abundantly. Well, if we want life after the comma, we gotta follow the commands, the formula that will get us there. I I, I, I used to, you know, like I said, react very negli- negatively to that, and I heard this great story that, that I think is a good analogy on this, so I'm gonna share it with you. Now, look, I'm a, I'm a Texan, and so as a Texan, I, I'm a good Texan, I drive a pickup truck, all right? And so my pickup truck, it happens to be a Dodge Ram, it's actually my wife's truck, I just get to drive it once in a while, but my, my wife's beautiful new Dodge Ram uh, 1500 pickup truck When we got it, we got home and we looked in the glove box and and guess what was in the glove box? A manual, yeah, owner's manual. And and guess what this owner's manual was designed to do? It was written by the people that actually created the truck, designed the truck, engineered every little thing about the truck, and here they were telling me, hey, if you want your truck to last long, if you want it to run well, if you wanna get the best, the life after the comma, out of your truck, follow the instruction manual. And here's how I could have responded, this way I would have done it in my former life. I'd have been like, hey, this is my truck. I'm gonna do with my truck what I wanna do with my truck. I don't care if you were the manufacturer, it's my truck now, I get to do anything I want with my truck, and nobody's gonna tell me how to drive my truck or take care of my truck. And then I would have driven down to the gas station, and I said, you know, maybe that instruction manual I threw out the window might have said to put gas in this truck, but this is my truck. I'm putting diesel in my truck, because I like diesel better. How far do you think I'm getting out of that driveway? Not very far. In fact, it's probably going to turn into a Chevy after that. Um, but, but the point is that the people that made the truck, the manufacturer, the creator, the inventor, the designer, knows how the truck works best. And I would be wise to follow that instruction manual. It's the exact same way in life. God has given us this great instruction manual that allows us to have the best relations possible that allows us to have the best society possible if we follow the instruction manual. So if we can, let's set aside that thing of we don't want commands, we don't wanna wanna be told what to do, and let's look at it more of, hey, here's the instruction manual. Trust me on this, you're gonna get the life after the comma if you follow that. And then let me address one other thing before I go further, and that is when we talk quote unquote politics, or, or government, and then it gets into policy, and then you gotta start talking about what's right and what's wrong, and what's the best thing to do, and can you legislate morality, and all those questions. And let me just tell you as a former legislator, every bill that ever gets passed by any legislature or by Congress is legislating morality. Every time you're making a decision about what is right or wrong. I don't care if it's speed limits, if it's taking someone's life, murder, whatever it might be, you're legislating morality. You're saying this is the moral right or wrong and the law must reflect what is right and not what is wrong. And the more that the law reflects moral absolutes and the higher law the better the community's gonna benefit. So we're always gonna legislate morality. But then that brings up the next question. Here's the real popular one in culture today. As soon as I start talking about this stuff, I start getting the, hey, wait a minute, you're not judging me now, are you? Hey, you know, the Bible says judge not lest you be judged. Most often quoted Bible verse in America today. Usually by non-Christians. Two Christians on Facebook in some debate about what's right or wrong, right? You're judging me, which my response to that is always, wait, are, are you not judging me because I was judging you? <laughs> wait, the point is, the Bible does not say, and it's not only the most quoted, it's the most misquoted Bible verse. God is not telling us to not have discernment. He's not telling us to not judge. He's telling us not to judge self-righteously and hypocritically. In other words, don't stand there and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong while I'm doing the same exact same thing, right? And not in any way submitting to God to try to change it in my life. Can I just tell you right now, and every one of us could say this, I am a sinner just like anyone else. I needed a savior. I have to every day fight against lust, against uh, pride, against selfishness, against anger, against all of these things. That is what we all face. And the great commission is, I still got my trucks up there, sorry about that. Um, the, the great commission is is actually the fact that he gives us this manual to be able to overcome all of those things. So what we're saying, when when I say when we when we don't allow this judge not lest you be judged to, to to make us cower away and not even stand for righteousness or truth or speak truth into a culture, is we've we've neutered the gospel. We've neutered the message that actually is salt and light in a community. Salt is not just us going out and 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 and, and just saying things. Salt is actually preserving the culture and bringing out the best flavor of the culture. So when the church is no longer speaking that truth into the culture, we are condemning that culture to have to live with the bad consequences of bad decisions because we didn't sow into it the best things that would bring out the best flavor. Does that make sense? So what we want to do as Christians is make sure that we are making disciples of folks and we're teaching them right from wrong. So we are going to have to be judging when we do that, meaning we're making decisions about right and wrong. This has gotten a little bit personal for me this year because I have a, uh, my daughter's just turned 18 years old. She's gorgeous and talented and all those things. And so I know I'm about to face what many of you fathers in this room have had to face, you know, and, and it's gonna be those guys calling on my daughter. And, 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 and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get prepared for this mentally and, and all that, and I've started thinking about, you know, what, if some guy comes knocking on the door, and, and I use my contacts as I naturally will to do background check on his license plate, um, <laughs> and i get and and i get the response and it's a rap sheet a mile long and the guy's out on bail for child kidnapping and a whole bunch of other things and and uh, and he shows up at the, at the door to date my daughter should my response to my daughter be hey judge not lest you be judged you know hey you just do whatever feels good and go ahead and go or should i have a little bit of a discernment and have a little bit of a hey we're going to have a standard here that god's given us and we're going to try right not to say there's not forgiveness for that guy and all that that's another sermon But the point is, we have to have a little bit of wisdom and discernment in how we walk this thing out. Is that fair? Okay, that's what we're going to start with as we dive into this political thing. So let's look at government and our role here as Christians in a free society. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So let's apply that to us right now today in America. Back in his day, you had a, a Roman tyrannical government over the Jewish community, right? Today, we live in a free society. In our system in America, who is Caesar? How do we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's in America? Who's Caesar? We are. Who said that? Get that person a cookie. Very good. Exactly the right answer. We are Caesar in America. Think about the Constitution. First three words, we the people. So we may elect people to go service in certain areas. We may uh, loan certain powers to certain levels of government, but at the end of the day, we are in charge. We the people are Caesar. Well, then how in the world do you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's if you're Caesar? In our system, I believe that simply means living out your freedom, participating in this system, this Republican form of government that we have, which means we're engaged in choosing good leaders, we're obeying biblical commands and how to do that, we're getting ourselves educated about what are the uh, pieces of of the freedom formula that produce good results, and what are policies that will produce bad results, and the more we learn that, the better we can do as citizens with this wonderful freedom that we've been given in terms of preserving it for future generations. So rendering under Caesar what is Caesar, and our culture means we've got to get engaged. We've got to start paying attention to what's going on. Let me show you how not to do this. All right, This is where I, I'm going to give you the bad first of how we've messed up as a culture and then hopefully give you a few things to walk away with in terms of how to save the culture and and, and, and do our duty under the, under the Constitution and under the Bible. This is in Psalm 78, and this is going to describe in some ways what has happened in the last 60 years or so here in America. And it has to do with whether or not we're teaching truth generation after generation and teaching God's word and and a providential view of history. In other words, showing where God's hand has moved in our culture in good ways, how it's made us a more perfect nation, how our nation was even founded in the first place. Here's what he said in Psalm 78. "'Give ear, O my people, to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open up my mouth in a parable, and I'll utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us.'" We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. That's the key in what I'm trying to show here is we've got to make this known to the next generation. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should rise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. See, if we don't teach each generation of Americans God's role in America and what godly principles are and how godly principles produce good results and principles that aren't godly produce bad results, if we're not doing that, if we haven't taught that for now three generations, we're gonna live with the results of that because as a people, as a culture, as a society, we're not gonna keep his commands. We're not gonna apply the Bible to our culture and then we're gonna have to live with the bad results. He said, "...and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle." Now, you may say, what's that got to do with us today? Think about it. We're just like them. We are armed with the peaceable means to be a positive influence in our community, we are armed with everything we need to be salt and light. We're blessed to not live in a tyrannical nation. We're blessed to not have to uh, cower and hide and worship and hiding and not be able to live out our faith. We live in a nation where we can take everything we're learning on Sunday and take those lessons uh, from God's word and go out there and live them in our community. And yet, like Ephraim, in so many ways, the church out there is hiding and not engaging in the battle. Part of why I love C3 is because you guys think outside of the four walls, just like you were saying. It's not about just having religion inside the four walls. It's about taking this relationship and showing the people out there how they can live that life after the comma. That's what we need more of. That's what C3 is doing. We need to see it happening all over the country. Last part of this one. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt and the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through and he made the waters to stand as in a heap. In, in the daytime also he led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rock in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. In other words, he's recounting all of the wonderful, awesome, miraculous works that God did. We used to do that in America but now we don't. We no longer retain the knowledge of God and the great things that he did in our nation. And they sin yet more against him by provoking the most high in the wilderness. We will not hide them from their children. That's what I'm asking you to change. Let's not hide God's work from our children and from the next generation. We gotta make it known to our children. That's why we have to teach these things. We have to use the talent that we've been given. See, I think about the parable of talents, and I think it applies to this particular message in terms of citizenship and freedom. I think freedom is a talent that we've been given. And just like in that parable, you remember there was three of them, and, and, and two of them really worked the freedom. They, they lived it. They, they worked the talents. They multiplied them. They doubled them. And the master came back and said, well done, that good and faithful servant. And made them uh, uh, rulers over cities and all those things. What did that other one do? Buried the talent, right? Took that talent and said, I'm not going to participate because I'm afraid. And we do that many times in our culture. We don't use our freedom, live our freedom, participate in our freedom because we're afraid. Either we don't know how to use it or afraid of how it might be misused against us. And so we remove from the culture, and then the culture has to live with the results of that. Let's be the one that actually works the talent. I don't want to be that wicked and slothful servant. I want to be the one that they say well that God says well done that good and faithful servant. All right, I'm going to jump into a I know I'm going pretty fast here. See now I've been going really slow. I'm going to try to speed this up and get a little more David Barton and I both get accused of talking 90 words a minute with gusts up to 350 And I'm just gonna stay at about 8.50 tonight, okay? So we're gonna do as much as we can in a very short period of time. You just look for those little golden nuggets that really uh, you can apply for yourself. But as I cover founding fathers, and and I know what happens. As soon as I say founding fathers, in this culture we live in today, with what's been taught in our college campuses the last 20 years, a lot of people will tune me out as soon as I say founding fathers. And you might be thinking, what do I have to learn from the founding fathers? Those guys were all a bunch of racist slave owners. I mean, why could they possibly teach me anything? Let me first say this. Most of the founding fathers were not slave owners. Most of the founding fathers were abolitionists. I can take the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence for you and break them down one by one and show you that three-fourths were abolitionists. This guy, Noah Webster, he actually started the Connecticut Abolition Society. Some of the other guys I'm gonna talk about, Benjamin Rush started the Philadelphia, uh, I mean the Pennsylvania Abolition Society along with Benjamin Franklin. They wanted to end slavery. Those guys didn't. That doesn't mean all of them. Yes, absolutely, there were some of them that were dead wrong on this. In fact, the delegates from South Carolina and Georgia are the ones that killed the anti-slavery language that Thomas Jefferson had written into the Declaration. And by the way, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner but he was also an abolitionist. You go, what, how in the world does that work? There were a lot of these founders that were born into the world of slavery and a family that was a slave owning family that they through, get this, through the word of God began to realize how evil this is and how wrong it is and said we gotta change this and they were the ones pushing to change it from the beginning. That's a whole nother talk, I'm sorry for going off on a rabbit trail, but I just want you to keep your ears open just because I'm saying founding fathers, don't tune me out. A lot of these guys were on the right side of history in these arguments from the beginning, Noel Webster being one of those, and here's why. Look at this biblical worldview that he was applying to the culture. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. Think about that today. So many of the things, the miseries that we're seeing in our culture right now are specifically because of our culture despising and neglecting the precepts of the Bible. The truth in the Bible is right there for us to plant the seeds and water out there in our community, but we're facing this despising and neglecting because we've tried to remove the Bible from the culture in so many different ways. We could go through a lot of these guys. John Adams, he said, the general principles upon which the founders achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I put that one in there because I want you to know the foundation of our founding documents is Christianity. Christianity. We're founded upon biblical principles. That doesn't mean they got every application right. We can stick on slavery if we want to tonight, but there's some other things they got wrong as well. But they didn't get everything right. They weren't perfect men. But they definitely, for the first time in history, formed a society based on the biblical view that says that power and freedom does not come from God to a king. It goes from God to the people, and then the people set up government to protect those rights recognizing that it came from God and must be lived out respecting the authority of God. That changed the world. Absolutely changed the world. And the things that they gave us in the Declaration of Independence, the truths in the Declaration of Independence, that's exactly what Abraham Lincoln quoted and and stood upon with the Emancipation Proclamation and ending slavery. I, I was recently filming in in, um, in Philadelphia at Independence Hall and and in that room in Independence Hall, where the Constitution was done in the Declaration, um, when, when Lincoln was headed to um, Washington to be sworn in as President of the United States, he stopped in Philadelphia. And he did it, they gave him a little tour and he got to go in. And at that time in Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell actually sat in Independence Hall. They had put it in there, it was no longer being rung, but it actually was there before they put it in the big display they have now. And And he's in there and he's and he's looking at all this stuff and he's literally basically saying I'm, that he was getting chills because he said, what those men did when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, that every political thing, thought and conviction that he had came from that Declaration of Independence, and it was upon those principles that he was going to fight for as president, and he actually said this. This is so creepy. He said, he said, I would rather be assassinated than those principles be lost in America. Those are the things I'm going to go fight for, and look, of course, five years later, he was assassinated, and he came whenever he uh, um, was, uh, whenever they were taking his body back, he lied in state there at Independence Hall and 85,000 people came by to pay their respects. I tell you that just to say that the principles were right in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unenable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those truths, it took a long time to actually apply to all Americans, but that's how we got there because of those principles being done. And those principles in the founding documents based on the Bible. Here's what Benjamin Rush said. One of the signers, he's right there with his little circle around him. Uh, I mentioned earlier he founded the, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. He looks really funny up there, doesn't he? That's kind of, um, he founded the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, and he founded the the Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania Abolition Society, and the Philadelphia Bible Society. These guys started dozens of Bible societies. How many of you ever been told the, the founding fathers were all a bunch of atheist, agnostics, and deists? You ever heard that? These guys were supposedly all atheists. They were starting Bible societies. They were doing prayer proclamations. All of these things that clearly proved they weren't atheists. Rush was one of those. Here's the way he put it. Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. And in proportion, as mankind adopts its principles and obeys its precepts, they will be wise and happy. He's saying in proportion to how much we take God's word and apply it to the details of our life, in proportion to that, that will be our level of happiness. We get the life after the comma if we put the formula in place and apply the principles that he gave us. He said the gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Every situation. That means there's nothing in our life the Bible doesn't apply to. I bet you would never walk away from church on Sunday morning and say, man, that was that was a great sermon. I mean, that was really, really good, preaching about family and how to treat your spouse and how to sacrificially love your spouse and, and all of those things. That's so good, and driving home with your wife, you say, you know, baby, that was a great sermon, But uh, and I really wish we could go home and apply it, but there's a separation of church and home. You, you mean y'all don't do that? You know, I mean... Whoa 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 what about if the sermon's all about how to, you know, a good work ethic and you serve well in your community and how do you treat your employer? If you're an employer, how do you treat your employees? And all that good stuff and you say, "Man, I wish I could use that at work tomorrow." But separation of church and work. Why in the world we wouldn't do that? Why in the world do we say separation of church and state? I can't apply the Bible to what my society and my community looks like. We've allowed a lie to remove us from those things. And Rush is saying exactly that. He's saying, the more we take the Bible and apply it to all of these areas, the more we get the benefit. Happy they are who are enabled to obey them, meaning those biblical precepts in all situations. The Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. By renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from their moorings upon all moral subjects. It is, only, it is the only correct map of the human heart that has ever been published. I love that. Map of the human heart. It's just like we were saying that instruction manual. He knows our emotions. He knows our thinking. And therefore, he shows us in the map how to best maneuver in life. And that's why we want to use it in every area. The only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican form of government. So this one here is what I'm really supposed to be talking about tonight, is why? how do we apply this relationship with Christ in our spheres of influence in government? The reason is because you cannot have, Benjamin Rush is about to tell us, you cannot have a free Republican form of government without applying the Bible. You will eventually lose your liberty if you remove the Bible from the culture. Here's how he says it. The only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican forms of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. Why is that? Because think about this. We can can say that we're a free society, but if we are not a moral society, if there's no morality outside these doors right here, we can't make it to our car without being raped, murdered, stolen from, whatever the crime might be. And then if we want to stop that from happening, if there's no morals in the society, we have to have government become so big in order to stop us from killing each other that then we have a police state and we move into tyranny. So the only way that this representative form of government, a Republican form of government is going to work is if we have self-government. If we are learning to apply the Bible to our our lives, then you get freedom. So... I, I told him this morning. I know I'm frustrating you because I'm going 100 miles an hour, and you're so used to clapping and amen, and after every sentence or two. And so I, I, I'm getting a kick out of this because I'm watching you guys, and we'll we'll go, we'll do something a good quote, and you'll be ready to clap. And it's like, mm, and then, and then I keep going, and then, mm, and then so in a second we'll just pause for 20 seconds, and you can just just clap. But but if, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, I know what I was talking about. So so if, if you. If you I needed to take a breath anyway, so I can go another 20 minutes on that one breath. We got I needed a drink of water too, but so the only way you have liberty is if you have morality. All right, and without and without morality you won't have the liberty, but how do you get morality? You apply biblical truth to get that morality. I mean I mean, Washington in his farewell address, he said of all the habits and dispositions which lead to political prosperity. Religion and morality are indispensable supports. Now, he didn't mean religion like we've been talking about, we don't want religion. He meant religion in terms of relationship, where you're actually living out the principles taught in the Bible because he shared this exact same view. So you get liberty by having the morality that is created as a result of applying the relationship we have through, through Christ in the Word of God. The Bible should be read in our schools in preference to all other books Because it contains the greatest portion of that kind of knowledge which is calculated to produce private and public happiness. Bible in schools? Are you kidding me? I mean, who are these guys who talk about Bible in schools? Surely they knew that was unconstitutional. Oh, wait, they gave us the declaration in the Constitution. Maybe they knew what would actually be constitutional. He's actually the father of our public school system under the Constitution. And he's saying, get the Bible in there and make sure you're teaching it from the time they're kids. The guy that wrote the First Amendment, was a man named Fisher Ames. He said, the Bible should not only be in our schools, it should be the primary textbook in our schools. He said, get this other stuff out of the way that's getting in the way of teaching from the best book ever that gives you the best happiness in the culture, private and public. That's from the guys that actually gave us these documents. The great enemy of the salvation of man never invented a more effective means of removing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible in schools. The Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. He's saying you gotta start young, you gotta instill these values generationally. He's basically saying what Psalm 78 told us, if you don't do this, from our generation teaching the next generation then sooner or later they forget what God did in the culture and then they don't apply his principles and his commands and they disobey all that and you get all the bad things that come from that John Hancock guy that uh, was president of the Continental Congress only got to actually sign the declaration uh, only signer uh, of, that was uh, on July 4th everybody else uh, gave it to us a month later they came in and signed on August 2nd so I was supposed to be here on July July 4th so we're kind of doing a little bit of a July 4th uh, service here but on on August 2nd is when they actually came in and put their names on the document knowing that were going to die if they did so. Hancock actually did it on the fourth. Here's what he uh, said about religion and Christianity. Sensible of the importance of Christian piety and virtue to the order and happiness of a state. In other words, I know that if you follow Christ's principles, if you have that in your life, that's basically what he means by piety. You're applying it in your life, then it's prosperous. It gives us a happy order and a happy state. I cannot but earnestly command commend to you every measure for their support and encouragement. That's a fancy way of saying, I know what happens when people follow the Bible. When people follow the Bible, it's good for all of us. Even if you don't believe in the Bible, you want other people to follow the Bible because of what it does for the society. It's kind of like faith-based prisons. I always tell, in, in in the some of the political debates that we've had in, in my state legislature over whether or not to have, to have faith-based private prisons, I always show them the statistics, and I say, look, in a regular prison, you have a 67% recidivism rate. So when we don't address matters of the heart, we just lock people up and, and, and don't address the issues, 67% of the time, they go back to those things. In a faith-based prison where you address the heart, 7% recidivism rate. Now, to my... To my atheist colleagues, I would say, now, I don't, you, know, you don't have to believe what I believe. You can look at these stats and go, look, if we do faith-based, if we apply the Bible, that means we're saving people from having to go to prison, we're saving our families whenever somebody has to go to prison, and we're also saving money from the crime not happening and all the other things. It's better for everybody, whether you believe it or not, the facts are absolutely indisputable. Here's why this works so well. He looks really funny in that stretched out slide. (laughs) I don't know about this hairdo thing, man. He looks like he's got wings on his head. Uh, Anyway, this is James Wilson, all right? James Wilson was the second most active man at the Constitutional Convention. He signed the Declaration and the Constitution and became a U.S. Supreme Court justice. First guy George Washington nominated when he became president. So he's an expert is what I'm saying. He said human law. Now here's where we're getting into how do you live out your faith in the world of government, all right? Human law is what your city council passes, your school board, your state legislature, Congress, any human law, whether criminal or civil, he said it must rest its authority upon the authority of that law which is divine. Far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law are twin sisters, friends, mutual assistants. Indeed, these two sciences run into each other, meaning they're like a couple of oxen pulling together to create a synergy that gives us a good society and a good culture. So you don't remove religion. You don't remove what God's word says about how a society works. You actually infuse it within the culture, and then you're gonna get a much better result. Here's what some guys at the University of Houston did. They, ra- they went and studied all the founders' quotes, and they said, who did these guys actually think, uh, who, did they, who were they thinking about and who were they learning from when they came up with these amazing founding documents that produced such a free world? And they found that Montesquieu was the most often quoted individual, Blackstone was second, and then John Locke was third at 2.9. And Locke, by the way, I've got uh, Richard Henry Lee is the one that made the motion for independence there in the Continental Congress in 1776. And Lee says that Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, he literally copied almost everything directly from Locke's two treatises of government. Well, I've got a, a 1774 version of his two treatises of government. It's 406 pages long. In 406 pages, John Locke quotes almost 1,500 Bible verses. That's three to five Bible verses every page where John Locke is saying, you want government to work well? Here's what the Bible says about it. You want this part of government to work well? Here's what the Bible says about it. That's where we came from. But even with all of that, look at this. They quoted directly from the Bible four times more than they quoted from anyone. The founders were into God's word. That's how they ended up designing what we have. In fact, you look at the Constitution, and they quoted... Phrase after phrase out of the Constitution, they said, came directly from the Bible. Even the way we elect our representatives right now, we have what we call a Republican form of government, and we choose out leaders, just like Exodus 18.21 says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That's local, county, state, and federal government. And then it tells us how to choose them. You choose able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Four requirements there. Are they capable of doing the job? In other words, I, I'm, not voting, I'm, I'm not willing to vote for somebody that doesn't actually have a decent chance of going in and doing a decent job. I want someone that also fears God, that has a biblical worldview so that when they get into government, they can look at this thing in the context of how God designed us and what his instruction manual says. So you can go through that whole list, but they said we based that right out of Exodus. Our separation of powers, yeah, Montesquieu was writing about it in spirit of the laws, but they said we based it on Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is evil, no man can know it. So you might be a great guy, but if I make you king or we make you king, you've got evil in your heart you don't even know is there. And so if there's no checks and balances on you, that's a dangerous situation. They were studying history and they knew that, and they were studying Jeremiah 17, 9, and they said that's why we have separation of powers. That's why we have three branches of federal government. That's why we have a vertical separation and a horizontal separation. That's why we have state, local, and federal. All those things based on the Bible. Our government is based on that. Uh, James McHenry, founder of the Baltimore Bible Society, said, Bibles are strong protections. Where they abound, men cannot pursue wicked courses and at the same time enjoy quiet conscience. Big fancy way of saying, you know what? If Bibles are permeating the culture, then when someone commits a crime and they do something that's wrong, their conscience is gonna be pricked. The Holy Spirit's gonna prick their conscience because truth is so well known, they know what they did was wrong. That's very different than a culture that says, do whatever feels good, there is no right or wrong. When you say that and you teach that generation after generation, you create a culture where everybody is a God unto themselves. They decide for themselves what they want to do, and that's what we're facing in America right now is a culture that thinks that anything goes and everything's okay, and it's wrong for us to stand up and say that there's a right or wrong. He says the opposite happens when Bibles permeate a society, then all of a sudden you've got a, a, basically a God consciousness throughout your culture and your, and your society. He said, public utility pleads most forcibly for the general distribution of the Holy Scriptures. Not private, public utility means our public, our society will be better if we have a good distribution of the Holy Scriptures. Without the Bible, in vain do we increase penal laws and draw entrenchments around our institutions. Simply means you can pass all the laws you want against hate, against crime, against, um, you name it. But he said, you pass all those laws, if you don't change the heart of man, those laws aren't gonna do any good. You've got to change the heart of man. And that's what the Bible does. That's why we want it permeating everything that we do. Okay, last scripture. I'm going to, yeah, this was pretty long though. Let's see what I got. Four minutes. Okay. Um, Romans 1. Because of when they knew God, we used to know God in America and we used to publicly acknowledge him and publicly proclaim him. But when they knew God, they stopped glorifying him as God. So even though we used to know God and publicly proclaim him, we stopped glorifying him as God 50 years ago and stopped acknowledging him. Neither were we thankful. We became vain in our own imaginations and our foolish heart was darkened. I know I'm reading this in the present tense, because I think it applies to our culture right now today. Professing ourselves to be wise, we've become fools. Is that not a true statement of where we are right now? How many times do you watch those talking heads on television, and they sound so haughty-taughty, and they got more degrees than a thermometer, and they're supposed to know it all? They can't even tell male from female anymore. (laughs) Tell me we hadn't become fools. It changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things wherefore God gave them also, also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie. And worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Friends, that right there is an indictment of what I would call a radical environmentalist movement that says worship the creature instead of the creator. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not for taking care of what God gave us. I believe we're supposed to reign and have dominion. That's what the Bible So that means we take care of it, we preserve it, we, we treat what God gave us carefully and, and, and in good care but it means I don't worship the earth. I don't worship the creation, I worship the creator. And we've been lied to on that one. I'm trying to, what I'm really working on here is trying, I'm trying to offend every special interest group possible. So, if you're worshiping a special interest group instead of God, my hope is to offend you tonight. All right, and and, and if you if you're like, If you're like, oh man, he's stepping on my toes. I apologize for that. My intent is to stomp on them, all right? so We we wanna make sure that we're getting that truth out there, getting loud. Okay, anyway, he said, for this cause, God gave them over, uh, God gave them up to uh, vile affections for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. Now everybody gets nervous, because like, oh, he's gonna preach against homosexuality. Yep, that one too. And likewise, also the men, but not just that one. Here's the key. See, what we've done in the church For 50 years, we singled out homosexuality and preached against it while we self-righteously had sexual sin in our own lives in other ways and made it like that one was worse. Anything outside God's design, the box is sex between a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that is against Holy Scripture, right? So let's not single any one thing out. Let's say we're all sinners. Let's find a way to not just go with our feelings, but actually go with God's word, amen? They burned in their lust one towards another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, that's what's happened to us. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled, now here's the thing. This is, this is why I say it's not just one particular sin. It's not even just sexual sin. <laughs> We're all gonna see ourselves in this list, right? With all uh, Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without, uh, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do them but have pleasure in them that do them. If you don't admit that you're in at least one of those categories and maybe 10 or 12 of them like I am, then you're lying to yourself, all right? We all fit in that, and what's the cause? We stopped acknowledging God. We stopped retaining the knowledge of God, and so we were given over to those things. So if we come back to teaching these things to the next generation teaching the truth that's in God's word showing them how they can apply this and and overcome those things and by the way I forgot to say uh, on this one because this is one of my, my my pet peeves on 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 this this idea that we can't speak truth in love when we have friends and others that are that are uh, going against God's word in some way whatever it is sexual sin pride greed you, you name it and and to think that we can't love someone and still tell them hey man this is not going to turn out well for you let me show you what god's gotten a better design for you it's like I, I tell young people that that we work with all the time because this is supposed to be such a taboo subject and third rail and all that stuff See so look if my brother comes to me and says you know rick Man, I've been married 15 years and she's been great to me and we got 3 kids, but you know, I just feel like I, you know, I'm just made to have sex with like 10 women, you know, at a, on a regular basis. I just can't be with just one woman. You know, to, for me to be happy, I mean, this is just who I am. I need to be able to have sex with a whole lot of people at the same time. Would it be love for me to say to my brother, "Hey, you just be who you are?" Would it be love for me to say to my brother, "Hey, have a good No, love would be, "Man, don't do this." Don't destroy your marriage and your kids and your life. Let me show you a better way. There is a better way. We all have desires and feelings and things that if we follow those things, we would experience great pain. And so God has given us the truth to show to people in love, but to show that truth and to speak that truth and our culture will benefit when we do and our culture will burn when we don't. We will lose the liberty that we have if we don't start following God's word and how we treat our neighbor, our justice system, all of those things that are so dear to us. Let me skip over a couple things here. I was going to talk about how we have been uh, pushing God out of the equation, but let me just say what Charles Finney said and how you can be a part of it. Uh, I love this slide because you know, I said earlier about how salt is actually preserving and also bringing out the flavor in the culture. America became known as the city on a hill, because it was an example to the rest of the world of what happens when you apply biblical principles and you get the liberty and the freedom and the benevolence and all the things that we've been able to experience as a nation. I I would argue we're no longer that city on a hill. We're not exactly the example that other nations should be following. We're usually exporting things that are hurting nations uh, rather than the, the, the other way around. We can again become that city on a hill. If we, as Christians and as the church, will do our duty under God's word and under the Constitution, uh, Charles Finney was a guy in the in the Second Great Awakening. It's not John Travolta; I know it's confusing when you first look at the slide, and it's not Justin Bieber either. But um, uh, it's, it's it's Charles Finney. He was starting this style thing in the 1800s. It was actually kind of a good dance move. But anyway, he said the church must take right ground in regard to politics. The church must take right ground in regard to politics. Yeah, because here's the deal politics, that's just part of your religion when you live in a country like this, is what he's saying. He's saying, when you live in a free nation where we get to choose those leaders, then as a church and as a Christian, if you're not applying God's word, you have boxed off an area of your life and said the Bible doesn't apply. Whereas if you take that view of Psalms 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that it's all his, then when you take part in politics, you're just living out your religion. In other words, it's a part of our duty to our country as it is a part of our duty to God. When we fulfill this duty as citizens, we're actually honoring God. We're obeying God's commands. This is the strong one, though. God will bless or curse our nation according to the course Christians take in politics. So see, I don't want you walking out of here tonight going, that was kind of neat, heard some cool things about freedom. I want you to walk out of here with a little bit of a burden that says that if I'm going to enjoy the blessings of liberty, I've got to bear the burden and the responsibility of obeying God's word to keep it alive. I'm going to ask you to do exactly what the founding fathers did. They were willing on August 2nd to come forward when their name was called and put their name on a document that said, In support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I'm asking you to start giving of your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor to preserve freedom in our nation. And what I mean by that is giving of your time. That's your life. Studying God's word. Two specific things. Study God's word so that you know what truth is. You know, we've got a lot of Christians in America who never even read through the Bible. Study God's word so you know what truth is and look at it with the eye of, if you would, just just, just next time through the Bible, look for scriptures that say, God, how, do I, how, do I, how can I be a good citizen? How do I fulfill my duty biblically? And I promise you, it's all throughout the entire Bible. So look for, first of all, what is the truth? And then how do I apply truth in the culture? How do I actually go out there and influence the world around me? So part one is know the truth, get in God's word. And part two is know what it means to be a citizen in America. Study the Constitution. Study the candidates. Pay attention to what's going on out there. Let your voice be heard and your values counted. don't just complain about what our leaders are doing. If you're not voting, don't complain about what they're doing. Make sure that you're out there influencing with a biblical worldview and casting a vote that will honor God. Now, you might say, well, Rick, I can't do that with any of the candidates that are running. You are in California and all. But... Here's the thing. Do not take this attitude of I'm not going to vote because I won't vote for the lesser of two evils. I have friends that say that. I always say, well, you know what? Unless Jesus Christ is on the ballot, you're going to vote for the lesser of two evils because there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no perfect candidate, all right? I've never found a candidate I agree with 100% of the time. I don't even agree with myself 100% of the time, right. you got to say which one's the best one, which one's the least bad, and then work hard to have better candidates. And guess what? c 3s doing that right now. C3 is raising up candidates to go run for office, to take godly principles into government. So be engaged. Study God's word, know what truth is, and then go out there and be salt and light in your community. If you do that, I'm so convinced God's not just going to bless our nation. Our nation is gonna once again bless God. We're gonna actually honor God. We're gonna actually have a nation that once again has principles that honor him. I know we all wanna be in a nation under God. We all wanna be united as a nation under God. That's not gonna happen until we are first individuals under God until we submit to his authority, and then we can go out there and be salt and light and multiply that. I believe if that happens, we will once again be a nation under God. But the good news is, no matter what happens in any election, no matter what happens with any piece of of policy or legislation, I know where my joy comes from. It doesn't come from who's in the White House or the State House or any of that. It comes from whose I am, not where I am. So we can be joyful about this, and we can honor him in everything that we're doing, regardless of what we see around us.